This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Ever since the housing bubble and the financial crisis, the real estate market has been closely watched so that no major issues like 2007 and 2008 would show themselves again. But data recently showed that delinquencies on FHA mortgages rose in in a quarter for the first time since 2006. FHA loans are a favorite among low-income families and first-time buyers. So the question is, what does this data mean? We are joined uh, here uh, in studio by Wharton Real Estate Professor Ben Keyes to discuss this. And also joining us on the phone is Mike Frantantoni, who is Chief Economist for the Mortgage Bankers Association. Ben, great to see you again. Yeah, thanks for having thanks. me. Mike, great to have you on the phone with us today. Good morning. Glad to be here. Thank you, Mike. Uh, l- let's dig into the numbers here and, and look at what is happening. And I guess more importantly, if we know at this point the reason why it's happening. Sure thing. So... We put out our data for fourth quarter delinquencies last week, and what it showed is for the first time since 2013, looking across all types of loans, we had an increase in the delinquency rate. Uh, That delinquency rate really had been coming down in pretty much of a straight line since 2010, and we got into very, very, very low levels. Uh, So at this point, not terribly surprising that that overall delinquency rate went up. The other side of it, you know, obviously you mentioned the crisis, people are very focused on foreclosure numbers. The foreclosure starts rate, so the, the rate at which new foreclosures are initiated, is at its lowest level since 1988, right? So a very, very low pace of new foreclosures. Uh, the total number of loans that are in the foreclosure process is back to its lowest level since 2007. So uh, even though uh, looking across the board, across all types of loans, uh, you had this increase in delinquencies, Mortgage performance still looking really pretty good, um, and the foreclosure number is particularly strong. So, do you think? Uh, do you think this is then a blip on the radar? Well, let, let me just dig in one, to one more part of the numbers, okay. which is what, what you highlighted the FHA data. And for FHA, we did see a big jump for the quarter. So, the total past due rate, so that's people who have missed any uh, uh, any mortgage payments, was up seventy two basis points. So. You know, almost three quarters of a percentage point, and most of that was driven by people who were just one payment behind or, or 30 days behind on their loan, which went up 55 basis points for the quarter. Um, that FHA category is still a touch below where it was a year before, but this was a very large jump for the quarter, and we just wanted to make sure people were aware of it. The the level, as with all loans, is still reasonably low, but. We're keeping our eye on whether this is a turn in the level of performance for FHA in particular. So playing off of that, do you, th- do you think that this is something that is just part of the cycle, or is this a trend that, that bears watching going forward? Oh, it certainly bears watching. I don't think it's anything to be alarmed about. I think it is reflecting that uh, you are seeing – some expansion of credit, you're seeing some additional first-time buyers come into the market, which is a positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the fact that you're getting some borrowers with less than absolutely perfect credit in the door, it's not surprising that delinquencies are, are a touch higher. It's just, it, it, the, the question is, the big jump we saw here this quarter, is this 
going to uh, be reflected at, as further increases, or are we going to level out at this new higher higher plane? Ben? So I think that the, it's useful to take a, a little bit of a step back and think about who the, the FHA borrowers are, yeah. who are the category where we're seeing this increase in delinquencies. And I really share Mike's views on this overall. I think it is um, absolutely a, a trend that bears watching. About 80, over 80% of FHA borrowers are our first-time home buyers, um, and it's part, important to remember the role that the FHA is playing in really filling a an important gap in the rest of the market, where the private market was was doing more of this in the in the early two thousands. The FHA is about twenty five percent of all loans uh, that are currently being originated, um, but forty seven percent of African American purchases and forty eight percent of Hispanic purchases. So the FHA is really filling this important role for people with less than perfect credit, and I think this is sort of a natural. Uh, outgrowth of changing standards over the last couple of years. Lenders were extremely conservative originating these loans just a year or two ago. Yeah, They've removed some of the um, the layering of credit that they've put on top of the requirements that the FHA has. So the FHA has a set floor, and quite a few lenders were placing additional constraints above that floor. And we're now seeing lenders soften on some of those uh, those dimensions. And so you're seeing the average FICO score fall from around 700 a few years ago down to around 680. And so just that small decrease in, in credit quality is is probably going to translate into a higher delinquency rate overall. But as Mike said, this is really low relative to the overall base and dramatically lower than where we were in the crisis. And so I think it's important to to keep this in perspective of the overall housing market. It's much healthier yeah. than it was before. And so the FHA is really providing this, this crucial um, role for for lower income and first time home buyers um, that the private market simply isn't providing. Well, and, and if if so many of these uh, instances, a good portion of them, are people that are only thirty days late, uh, it could very well be something as simple as you know we're coming off of the holiday season. You know, finances could have been had to be juggled during that period of time, and people will be able to pick that back up. As we go through the first quarter of 2017 and beyond, correct? absolutely. So there's a there's always a seasonal pattern to to credit performance, um, especially um, credit cards and other types of consumer loans. And you see this in the mortgage market as well. That usually the third and fourth quarters have the highest delinquency rates. People have um, maybe have seasonal jobs and and other things um, around the holidays that are challenging. And then um, in the spring, when you have uh, the tax returns and the EITC credits, a yeah. lot of people are able to make up those payments um, when they get the large check um, from the EITC. So especially for lower income households um, who really rely on those types of uh, that type of support through through the tax system, um, they're going to have a much larger seasonal pattern. And so as we have more lower income borrowers in the system, um, we'd expect that the, the delinquency cycle to look a little bit more seasonal. Mike? Yeah, I totally agree with what Ben was saying. Uh, let me do say that the numbers I gave you are seasonally adjusted. So right. do, doing our best to statistically adjust for the regular patterns that Ben was talking about, uh, whoever freely admit that that is a tough exercise, particularly in this post-crisis environment where the types of borrowers in the market are, are changing from year to year. And you know we, we, we make an effort to try to control for those more regular seasonal patterns. But some of this could be reflecting uh, even more seasonality than our, our model is capturing. Right, because seemingly, I mean, if you look overall at, at what people would have to have to be able to, to, you know, be able to get these loans in the first place, part of the equation on this is obviously the job that they have and 
the income that they've been able to bring in. And, and obviously for a lot of people, incomes have been marginally on the rise. You know, if you go to the, the Labor Department numbers, usually it's been, what, about two, two and a half percent on a per annum basis the last couple of years. So it seems like the economic quotient for a lot of these people, even at the lower end of the spectrum, has been getting a little bit better. So that's why I think a lot of people would say, well, if your job income is getting a little better, why is this happening? But obviously, it's it's not as maybe as big a factor as we think. Yeah. So let, let me point to one more aspect of the data. So one thing that we're able to do is to break out whether the delinquencies are coming from loans that were made several years ago or made more recently. Right. And to a point that Ben made, um, what we see in loans that were made in 2014, 15, or 16 was that the average credit score on those loans did drop about about 20 points. And so it is this, this positive of uh, more first-time buyers uh, being able to qualify and entering the market. Uh, but then the typical pattern you see with mortgages is that if people are going to uh, fall behind, they typically do that not right after the loan comes out, but, you know, two, three, four years afterwards. So we're at that peak delinquency period for that set of loans where credit came down a bit. So, again, I don't think there's anything really to be alarmed about here. It is kind of natural, but I also would uh, agree with what you said, that we have a really strong job market at this point. Unemployment's at 4.8, wages are growing, still very solid demand for for workers out there really uh, across the country. So, I think we're in good shape, but just going to keep watching this number. But but it is a little bit of a historical pattern, as you kind of alluded to, that once you get into year two, three, or four, that these potential problems could pop up. Right. Just, you know, life happens, you know, uh, there, there could be a change in jobs, some other change to your income from uh, where you were when you originated the loan, and that doesn't usually show up on the here's a couple of years. I guess to a degree, though, it, kind of going back on something we said before, the strength of the housing market obviously has come a, a long way, especially in the last five to six years, Ben. Uh, and just seeing how strong the housing market has been, uh, even with this, you know, kind of seasonal blip in there. Yeah, I mean, the, the housing market's been been running on all cylinders, and I think the you know the, along the margins is where you see the the most interesting. Um, developments. And so, uh, you know, construction has been quite low um, over the last few years as we sort of um, transition through the, this um, this glut of foreclosures in the pipeline. Um, and we're now starting to see uh, some, you know, signs that construction might might pick up a bit. And in terms of, of, of mortgage access, I think we're starting to see, um, again, this is really indicative to me of, of lenders um, willing to take a little bit, bit more risk. Um, nowhere near the types of risk that were being taken at, at the height of the bubble. And I think that's the the, the key point to sort of contrast the the excesses of the bubble. And so people, you know, um, read a lot into these small changes in delinquency rates. But in terms of the overall health um, of the of the housing market, it's just dramatically healthier. And I think, you know, even if some of these cases do lead to foreclosure, we're, we're back to a, a more stable market where yeah. these are idiosyncratic, right? So this isn't a, a, a systemic, you know, nationwide decline in house prices or anything like that that would lead to um, declining values. This is much, much smaller uh, within a, a very small subset of the overall market. And because prices are higher, it means that loss recoveries will be higher and the turnaround, um, if there is a foreclosure, will be higher. So I think, you know, we're sort of getting back to a, a healthier market where some people who are 
um, a little bit riskier, uh, who are not you know pristine credit, are able to get access, and that group of people is more likely to hit be hit with um, with some sort of disruption to their income. Yeah. And even if those cases do lead to a to a bad uh, a bad housing outcome, and those folks need to either sell their home or go into foreclosure. It's not going to be a big hit to uh, to a program like that. But it, it it also means that not only are, are is the value on a foreclosure probably going to end up being better in the long run, mm-hmm. the turnaround time of actually getting that property sold is going to probably be a, a good bit quicker as exactly, well. Exactly, because the pipeline just isn't there in the same way. So banks right. are going to be more uh, more able to turn these things around quickly. Um, the courts are not as backed up. Um, and if you just look at the overall health from a measure like uh, like negative equity, right? We've gone from a a state of the market where about 30% of um, of homes in the country were were in a negative equity position, right? The those with mortgages, the the value of the mortgage was more than the value of the home, yeah. Um, and that number has come down to to under under eight or eight or seven percent. So uh, the market is much much healthier overall, and so this is you know what you would expect of lenders getting a little bit more of a risk appetite, and that just means that the marginal borrower is a little bit riskier. Which, Mike, is interesting because, in fact, if you go back a few years, obviously the number of, of houses that were out there on the market that had been foreclosed on was a, was a really large number. And so to be able to kind of parse a lot of those properties out of this out of this process ends up being good. And, and to something that Ben said, that eventually we will see more home construction done as obviously a lot of these properties that were in foreclosure have, have kind of been taken off the market. Completely agree. And if you, you look at the numbers nationally, the percent of loans in foreclosure peaked at about 4.6%. And as I said, we're down to about 1.5% now, so the lowest in 2007. But it is important to keep in mind that, that this is a big country with uh, lots of variation. And some of that variation is in the nature of the foreclosure process. And as Ben said, the, there are some states where every foreclosure goes through a courthouse, uh, others where you have a, a non-judicial procedure, which is much faster. So two of the states with that judicial process, New Jersey and New York, still have very high foreclosure rates. So right. uh, almost 5.5% of loans in New Jersey, almost 4.5% of loans in New York are still going through the foreclosure process, whereas if you look at a state like California or Arizona, which was sort of peak of the crisis, they were below, they're below 1% right now. So uh, some of it's economic, some of it's sort of the, the legal and judicial regime within each state, but nationally things are much better and totally agree with Ben there. It, it also means, Ben, that, that also that run of what we saw a few years ago of of companies looking to buy properties and flip them and turn around. How much, uh, how much has that significantly changed in the last few years? Well, I think with the, the tightness of mortgage credit, especially among uh, lower income households, there's been a lot of demand for rentals. And so we've really seen huge increases in a lot of markets. Um, in the cost of renting a, an apartment or, a, or yeah. a house. And we saw this transition to um, single-family home rentals. So a number of large, um, large funds bought up um, huge numbers of houses to, to rent them out. And, um, and that sort of investment strategy might be running its course where, you know, there's been a lot of upward pressure on rents. Right. And as mortgage credit becomes more, more available and as the construction begins to pick back up, um, we might see some of those folks who are sort of the, the you know, the last home buyers in uh, transitioning from renting to owning. Right. And so that's going to take some of the pressure off of 
off of the rental market um, and and potentially bring rents back down a little bit um, and also um, you know kickstart some of the construction demand as well and that's going to really depend on the the provision of mortgage credit. Mike, when, when you looked at, at this data and put it all together, was there a geographic pattern to where where some of these uh, some of these delinquencies were actually happening? I would think if you're talking more lower incomes, you you possibly are looking at at more uh, in cities in major cities around the United States. Good question. It, we, it's really been fairly widespread across the country, so not a lot of geographic concentration. Um, but as you said, you know, FHA is really uh, product of choice for first-time buyers, moderate lower-income buyers, and so it tends to be a product that's more widely used in some of the lower-cost markets across the country. So when you think places like Texas and Florida, uh, parts of the southeast and, and southwest where, where housing costs are somewhat lower, you tend to have a somewhat higher FHA share. But uh, in terms of this jump, we, we really saw it just about nationwide. If this were to continue into the next report, and obviously you said there you, you factor in the seasonality with this, but if this were to uh, factor in in the next report and just playing devil's advocate, what what potentially would that say to you, Mike? So, uh, you know, I expect we're going to talk about some of the, the administrative uh, decisions that were made around FHA here in a yeah. second. But yeah. I, I think that really gets to be the focus about, you know, is FHA setting their premiums at the right level to cover the risk that, that they're facing? And I think, you know, if we were to see further increases in delinquencies from this point, that would suggest that FHA was taking on perhaps more risk than they initially uh, had intended. And so that gets to a decision sort of within the walls of, uh, of FHA about uh, whether and, and how they might move that premium going forward. Ben? Yeah, so this was, um, you know, in in the news um, quite a bit around the, uh, the time of inauguration, one of the very first um, actions of the new administration was to um, to freeze the, the reduction in this in- yep. these insurance premiums. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that was done. At least the motivation on the administration side was about the the health of the the insurance fund that the FHA holds. I think if we see these rates continue to rise along the lines that that Mike was saying, it, it will um, it will sort of support that that decision. Um, of course, the trade off is, you know, that that these um, more uh, more lower income um, home buyers are paying more each month um, to in in the form of these insurance premiums. And so the goal is always to. Um, to keep the system safe and sound, um, yeah. but to price risk as accurately as possible. And memory serves me when that when that story came out, the the savings that they were talking about, or I should say, the cost of this was what around five hundred dollars, I think. Yeah, in the ballpark of about five hundred dollars for the average uh, FHA borrower per year. Yeah, which uh, yeah. which you know, Mike, for a lot of people, I mean, I think people that are listening to us, they they don't see five hundred dollars as a massive savings, but for a lot of people that are on these particular type of loans. Five hundred dollars can can be a difference when you're talking about okay, just play it out over the course of twelve months. Eighty dollars a month that you know that that or you know fifty dollars a month that does play a factor at times. Oh, com- completely agree, and that 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 is that is one side of the equation. But as Ben mentioned, the the other side of the equation is that you need FHA as an entity to be solvent over time. And what we saw through the crisis was that FHA, which is required by Congress to have this 2% capital reserve, that capital reserve actually went negative. Um, 
and just slowly through a lot of hard work and through uh, higher premiums, frankly, that insurance fund has built back up above, barely above 2%. Uh, and I think uh, there, there's reason to be cautious because it, you want FHA to be there for borrowers in the future, and you also want to help FHA borrowers today, and it's, it's always a, it's a balancing act. Um, and t- totally agree that it, you, would, you would want to be able to offer lower premiums to borrowers today, but you need to ensure that the program is there and viable for the future. So then what what, what end up are, are the potential pitfalls that, that could be, you know, out there for FHA? Ben? Well, certainly the, you know, the shortfalls in their insurance fund um, are, are a concern. They are, as Mike just said, above that 2% threshold and yeah. so that's um you know that's sort of their bare minimum of of where they they like to be in the long run you know i think that that they're operating in a unique space right now because they don't really have any private competition so there really aren't other lenders out there who are making loans to this group yeah. outside of the fha you hear small uh, you know small examples here or there but nothing really widespread and you contrast that with the, with the housing boom where we had um, both a huge amount of piggyback lending, so second liens um, that were widely available, and we had a lot of um, activity in the subprime space and the Alt-A space. And so the FHA is sort of the only game in town yeah. um, for these types of borrowers. And so that's why I think it's um, we really do want to try to strike the right balance. We want to make sure that this program is there long term going forward. But at the same time, we don't want the the burdens to be to be too onerous on the monthly payments for these lower income households. But, but just thinking about that that five hundred dollar number for a second, how much of an impact is that? And obviously, when you multiply it by the number of loans that FHA is involved in, you know, com- is the concern that that falling below that two percent threshold is a significant possibility coming up in the in the next couple of years? I mean, they're really really close to that threshold right now, so yeah. they don't have a huge cushion. I think if you were to take um, those numbers away uh, each year for the next few years, you might be bumping right up against that that two percent. Of course, you know, with any insurance program, the the goal is that in good times you run up a pretty nice uh, cushion, and then yeah. uh, when times are tough, you have the you know you have the resources to to help people out. And so, you know, the two percent is sort of a floor, um, and it seems sensible to me that they'd want to be aiming for something a little bit higher than that. Uh, but at the same time, they just want to try to balance out the costs for. For these consumers who don't really have another option, and this is again why we see so much pressure on rental prices, because yeah. if those monthly costs are so high, people say, "Forget it, I'm going to continue to rent," and yeah. that just means more competition for apartments. Well, and and obviously, Mike, but part of that is just kind of the cyclical nature of, of what we're seeing uh, with uh, millennials who are you know waiting to make that purchase until they maybe get into their 30s. Not as many people are buying that first home when they're 27, 28 years of age. Uh, And obviously, that's been a factor on the market for the last couple of years. I agree. And, you know, one statistic that we really focus on is the percentage of existing home sales that go to first-time buyers. And historically, that's averaged about 40%. So first-time buyers are a very important component of the market. That dropped as low as about 25%. uh, when we got to 11 or 12, and it's yeah. been inching up. We're in the, sort of the low 30s at this point. Um, so I, I think we are beginning to see more millennials enter the, the purchase market. Um, that strong job market is one of the big drivers, but this is just such an enormous cohort of uh, young adults forming households, and whether they're renting or buying, there's just going to be tremendous demand for housing over the next decade, we think. So I think we're on a upward path here and we're just going to be 
appropriately cautious uh, in certain respects, but I, I think the overall housing market is going to be strong for the next several years at least. So places like San Francisco, where the the prices have really soared the last couple of years, they shouldn't be fretting with this in any way, shape, or form. You know, not not fretting from a from a credit quality standpoint. Yeah. I agree with Ben that uh, we do have an affordability issue both on the rental and the owner side, yeah. where vacancy rates are so low on the rental side, yeah. and inventory is so low on the owner shop side that uh, shelter prices are rising at twice the rate of overall inflation. And really, the only way to fix that is to build more houses. And so, yeah. I agree with Ben that the, I think the there is a positive outlook for the construction sector. Great to have you both on the show. Thank you, Mike, for joining us today. All right, thank you. Well, ben, great to see you again. Yeah, thank you, you too. Coming Thanks. in. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.